Well, good morning, church. So I am kind of the Nick Foles uh, today, stepping in, and uh, love the opportunity and just thankful for Pastor Lon and the time that I had with him this week as, as we talk through some of this. And so I just want you to know, I, if you're new here, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you are coming in to Wheaton Bible Church just at a, a really good time. We're in a series called Living Hope. And it's a journey that we as a church are taking through the book of 1 Peter because 1 Peter is just full of all these things that all these different subjects that we really need to spend time reflecting on and taking in to see what Christ wants to do in our lives. So you're jumping in at the right time. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, turn on your Bibles if you want to grab a Bible in front of you. And go to 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 20. That's where we're going to be. If you're getting a Bible in the pew, you're going um, to go to page 1,221. So this morning, I believe that we need to understand and today be walking out these doors as we enter society that we have to remember as we read this, because Peter is writing to Christians, that we have to remember that people who know they've been rescued for eternity live intentionally with holy action. And so what I want to do is look at some reminders from Peter. Peter's going to remind us of some things. Then he's going to give us some practical action that we need to live our lives with and, and start applying immediately. And so we're going to kind of go on a journey uh, through this text and take a look at that. When I was in high school, there was something that eventually flared up within me, and I believe that I was probably born with it. I believed it was passed on to me by my parents, uh, even though they would probably disagree with that. It seemed to come up whenever I turned 16. And it has, uh, it has this medical term called heavy right phytitis. It's a disease that has some consequences with it. And one of those consequences that I came to learn was a speeding ticket. See, I tried to hide this whenever I got this ticket whenever I was 16 from my parents, thinking I was a smart 16-year-old that had this disease that my parents gave me. And I tried to hide it from them, and that didn't work. And so I ended up at traffic court. The day came when I was to go to court, and my dad let me have a vehicle to to go there. And so I went, and the the judge had mercy on me and and said to me, you are going to give this grace, and gave me something known as court supervision. Court supervision was great because it meant that if I didn't get a ticket in the next three months, that my ticket would be wiped from my record, which was really good to be able to go back and tell my parents who were helping me pay that insurance payment of a 16-year-old. Later that day, after school, I ended up having to take the car back to my mom's office at Wheaton Christian Grammar School so that my dad, who was there, could have it. And of course, the disease that my parents passed on to me, heavy right phytitis, made me irresponsible with my time, and I was running late. You can probably see the trend here. 
That right foot did it again, and on the way, I got pulled over. That day, I believe that I had court supervision for a max of two hours. So I walked into my mom's office to her, my dad, and my younger brother, Drew, who seems to be a very observant person, and blurted out, what took you so long? Did you get another speeding ticket? So if you're a Wheaton police officer, my brother lives at, just kidding. So that day, I was given something by a judge. I was given something that was supposed to change my approach to life. I didn't deserve it, but it was given to me, and what ended up happening is I forgot about it. I forgot what it meant. And I'm sure that I'm not the only person in this room that has been given something that, is, that should change your life and in a matter of moments has forgotten about it. See, we are a people of short-term memory. And so Peter writes this letter, and, and he's writing it, and he wants the people he's writing to, these Christians, to remember, to not forget how important it is what they've been given. And so I want you to see that because as I think about that story in my life, it takes me to this text. It takes me to, to what is happening there. And so I want to go to the text, <coughs> excuse me, and I want to start in verse 9. This is part of the text that Hannibal preached last week, but I want you to see it because this is actually the front part of a bookend as we read it. And everything in between the bookends here is going to be important, but this is what leads in. So look at it starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when we read this, Peter ends up giving us this reminder that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, that Jesus has come, he has saved you, he has rescued you from the sin that has kept you far away from God. He, he came and he rescues you, you surrender to him, and because of that, it should change your life. It should change every ap approach to your life. And in fact, not only your approach, it changes your identity. See, Peter writes this, and verses 9 and 10 are about your identity. So if you are a follower of Christ this morning, your identity is found in these two verses. If you're sitting there going, I don't know who I'm supposed to be, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be about, you are here. See, your identity is not found in your job. Your identity is not found in your relationship status. Your identity isn't found in your bank account or in your children or in anything else you try to put into those categories. Because whenever you are a Christian, whenever you are a follower of Jesus, you are now a child of the Creator, a child of the King. Amen. And because of that, it changes who you are to be. See, you were someone that was separated. You were in the darkness and you have been pulled out into heaven's light. 
And this is who you are as you surrender to Jesus. Now, when we look at this, for some of you, you might be sitting here and, and you've been a Christian for a long time and you're going, of course my life isn't the same anymore. I know that. And I got to tell you that the problem is, is that whenever you are going through your daily life, you are a person of short-term memory. And so you forget the fact that your identity is found in Christ and nowhere else. And I can say that to you because it's the same for me. I forget that this is there. And so what happens is, is when we have this problem, Peter takes us back. And we can't allow the small moments, the minutes, the hours to come in and we forget this. Because it's only a matter of time that we forget our identity and Peter takes us back. And so if you are a seven-year-old in here and you're a Christian, or if you're a 95-year-old and you're a Christian, both of you are new. You are made new. And so Christ has made you new. He has rescued you. And that newness is to change you. You don't belong to your old self. And so God's grace comes in and takes root. And it should change your approach to life. See, this is why people who know they've been rescued for eternity live intentionally with holy action. Live with holy action in every area of their life. This this reminder of what we've been given drives us to action in our life. And so we've we've been given this opportunity in this short span of life to allow the Holy Spirit to come in, to mold us, to lead us, to right action. Not because we have to earn anything from Jesus, but because we want to worship Jesus for all that he's done and we want to reflect him everywhere we go. And so Peter takes us back to a reminder. And he reminds us, your identity is here. This is who you are. You are now God's possession. And you are beloved. And for some of you this morning, you're coming in here and you are desperately needing to feel love. And you're going to find that completeness in Jesus Christ. That's what what ends up happening. And so Peter ends up then going on. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter gives this reminder, and then he's going to remind again. See, what he writes in verse 11 has already been talked about. If you were to flip back to 1 Peter 1.14 or chapter 2, verse 1, you're going to see that he is saying there, do not conform to this world. Don't conform to it. Don't let the the world grab a hold of you and, and mold you. And so he's reminding us that we are to abstain from the sinful desires that are going to wage war on our life. Now I want you to see this. Uh, I want you to understand this word that he is using here, this word abstain. Abstain means this. It means a walking away from or a a holding back or avoiding. So Peter is saying You are to abstain from these desires. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. 
Now here's the deal. All of us in here come in here on a level playing field. We all have sinful desires that come against us. But I would imagine that the way we respond to those or the way we struggle with those is different. We handle those in different ways. And the reason is, is because we can go through life and we can dismiss the sinful desires in our life as casual sin. See, we can look at those sinful desires and we can say, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so. You know, this, if, if I do this, it's not as bad as John at work. I mean, have you seen what he's doing? And so we make these sinful desires very casual. And what Peter is doing is he's raising it up in the, the third time in a matter of a page. See, I would imagine that if we were in my kitchen and we were sitting there together and the oven was on and the stove was lit and things were there and a little child comes running in and runs over to start to reach for those things, all of a sudden you and I would react a certain way. We would probably react quickly and loudly and we would, we would physically go and try to remove the child. Why? Because if they touch that, it's going to wage war on their body. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. Those sinful desires are going to wage war on you. In fact, he uses the military term because he wants us to understand the destruction that can happen in our lives. Think of the pictures of Syria right now. I mean, buildings leveled, things just drastically damaged. And Peter is saying when we allow sin into our lives, it tears us down. And it doesn't just impact your life, it impacts the lives of those around you. So your selfishness when you give in to those sinful desires isn't just for you. You're going to end up impacting the lives around you. And so he's saying to this community of believers, abstain. Stay away from this. Rely on the Holy Spirit to give you strength to overcome it. In fact, in Galatians 5.16, the Apostle Paul ends up telling us this. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the Apostle Paul says that. Peter's reminding us in 1 Peter to abstain. And what both of them are not saying is try harder. It's not, they're not saying try harder. They're saying, remember your identity. Remember your identity as one who is a child of the king. And because you're a child of the king, you've been given the Holy Spirit. And because you've been given the Holy Spirit, when you rely on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives you power, it's not that the Holy Spirit's just going to let you continue on in that way. It means the Holy Spirit's going to help you overcome those desires. Overcome is defeating those desires. And that might be a one-time thing. It might be ongoing years upon years, but the Holy Spirit wants to empower. And it's our job and our identity to rely on that. And so let me ask you this. What is the thing that you need to abstain from in this moment? Because when we start talking about these things, I know what happens in our minds is that something lights up, a subject or the, the very sin that keeps coming back over and over again. What is that thing? 
I mean, you've got to claim it right now. This is what it is. And then you need to start giving that to the Spirit. On top of that, the reason when we look at this, the reason we, I desperately want you to join Rooted or get in a life group or get into one of our Bible studies is so that you can be with people that are also being bombarded with sinful desires and you spend time and you get completely open with it. This is what's happening. And then you pray over one another. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants to overcome And you're going to need others to pray over you and pray with you through those times. And so Peter is reminding and he's writing to Christians saying, abstain, abstain. Abstain for your good and abstain because it's for God's glory. God is going to be glorified in this. See, who we are behind the scenes ends up eventually coming out publicly. So if you're going, well, I don't need to declare this or I don't need to tell anybody about this because nobody knows about it, it's going to eventually come out. And Peter's writing because for us as Christians, when it eventually comes out and we haven't said this is what's happening, it shatters our opportunity for speaking about Christ to others. And so he's saying, be honest with it. Abstain and, and, and understand that whenever you do this, it then is going to allow you to live these good lives. These lives that are going to represent God to others. See, people during this time in the first century were thinking that the church was going to be this uprising of people. They were going to uprise against the government, against society, against culture in general. And Peter is saying, not to, to lift up an uprising, he's saying live good lives. Just abstain and live good lives. This is on the heels of what Hannibal taught us last week on how we are to love one another in this community of believers. And now he's taking a turn because you can't stop there. You need to take it outside the walls. Outside the walls of the church. And so he is, he is now giving this, in a sense, a command that you are to live good lives and you are to have this expression of Christianity to every person you come in contact with. To reach out. And when he's saying this, many scholars believe that when Peter wrote the good deeds, that the good deeds weren't just like helping somebody across the street. It it was helping people for the flourishing of their life. It was caring for people, meeting these physical needs immediately, meeting these economic needs immediately, whatever was happening there. And so to do these good works. And Peter gets that from his prime example. If you go to John 10, 37 to 38, you end up seeing Jesus say this. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So Here's the thing. We as Christians, we love using words. I mean, we do. And the the best part is our society and our news agencies love putting us on TV. We use words and we we are going to shout and we're going to make these statements and we're going to say all these things. And what Peter is saying is, and and taking us back to, to Jesus, is that 
hey, yeah, you're going to use words, but you've got to use deeds. You've got to live with these holy actions to draw others to the king, to the creator. Because people who know they've been rescued for eternity live intentionally with holy action. Many of you are going to be uh, watching the big game tonight. And many of you are probably going to watch the halftime show. Well, this past week, uh, Justin Timberlake came out with this new album. And in one of his psalms, he doesn't even know the brilliance of the statement he wrote. But he writes this. He says, sometimes the greatest way of saying something is to say nothing at all. Peter is saying, act. Abstain from sin. Let the Spirit mold you and then go act because your actions can draw people to the cross. And that's what you and I are to be about. We're to be about drawing people to, to the king, the one that has changed our identity. And then Peter goes on. Look at verse 13. We'll start there. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, we could spend weeks on these verses here, okay? But what I want us to see is that now Peter is moving from here's your identity, here's abstain, do these good works. Now here's how you can do some of those good works. Here's the practicality of it. And so the first holy action that we can take is that we submit to government authority. We submit to government authority. Now this section starts with a word that makes, that it really stirs up great emotion, and it's the word submit. And I want to say, I want to say this. For those of you that have been believers for, like, since you were in diapers, okay, we tend to take this word submit and think that it only applies to women. And I want you to hear this. That is False. See, when Peter is using the word submit, he is writing it to every believer. So every man, every woman that follows Jesus Christ is to submit. And he is writing specifically to submit to certain things. And so in this, he's writing that we should submit to the, to the government authority. See, this is a word that shows how we can love the way that Jesus loves. So literally speaking, the word submit is taken from two other terms. One meaning under and one meaning to place or to order. So whenever you look at this, it is to place under. 
okay, to order under. And so whenever we look at this, the idea that Peter is getting at whenever he writes this is that we choose, it's a choice, to choose to place under. So when we look at the government and he starts writing about this, he says, you choose to place yourself under that authority. And why do we choose that? Well, when we look at it, Although we might have great emotion and feelings towards the one who are in those government positions, we choose to do it because we honor God. Our main job description is to honor God. And so before we go any further, further, let me remind you of another thing. Nothing has changed from the beginning of time. God is still sovereign. He's still sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he has allowed governments to be set up to provide and to maintain order to provide protection for the people. This was true when Peter wrote this, and it's true today. He is still sovereign. Now, I'm not going to go to political agendas when we're talking about government this morning. But for some of us, we're sitting here and we're reading this and we're going, You know what? Peter never knew the presidents that I've had to sit under. I mean, the governors, the mayors, how messed up all this is and all the authorities. And you're right. Peter never knew that. He only wrote this when he was under the authority of Nero, the the emperor. And just so you know, Emperor Nero, he was one of the most brutal, ruthless, cutthroat leaders to have ever lived. To the point where he was sacrificing people. He was instilling cannibalism into feasts. He was killing children. All of this was taking place, and he was so cutthroat. And then Peter writes this. To submit to the government authority. On top of that, Peter is writing this after seeing that Jesus was crucified and killed by the decree of of human authority. So the whole framework of, of saying submit to government authority seems messed up. But remember who his identity is in. See, he knows that that we are to have a plan. And so he gives us two reasons for doing this. The first one is in verse 9 where he says, for the Lord's sake. Do it for the Lord's sake. Because in verse 9, whenever he says it, we are God's possession. And so we're to represent him. So we do it for his, his sake. Then the second reason is found in verse 15 where he says, it is God's will. See, when we do God's will and we submit to government authority, then no one can come back and accuse us of starting an uprising or being a lawbreaker. Because we've submitted. And why do we submit? Because we respect. And and we see this in the life of Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So when we're looking at this, we have to understand that God has allowed government to be set up. But... They are not perfect like his will is. It's just not. Which means we have to ask the question, do we absolutely have to do everything the government says? And I want to tell you, no. 
We see this example in Daniel 3. In Daniel 3, you find King Nebuchadnezzar ends up setting up this statue of himself and declaring that everybody is to bow down and to worship it. And then three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, decide, no way, we're not going to do that. And so they don't do it, and there's consequences. But why did they disobey the law? It's because there was a higher moral law given by God that he alone was to be worshipped and no man. So they disobeyed it. And they did it respectfully. Then you jump to the New Testament in Acts 4, and Peter and John are arrested, and they're told that they should no longer preach that Jesus was alive. What do they do? They say, we can't do that. Why? Because they know where their identity is, and because where their identity is determines that they can't, uh, they can't obey that law because they live up to a higher moral law that says that God is to be worshipped and to be preached, and they are to t- proclaim Christ everywhere. And so they disobey. Now, so... Do we obey everything? No, not if what the government is asking us to do is contrary to God's clear and perfect will. Now here's why this is important. If you have never done this here, I'm begging you to find a place, whether it's rooted, life groups, or Bible studies, that you are jumping in so that you are opening this book. Because what the world needs is not a bunch of Christians that are reacting because of an opinion. They are reacting because they know God's will. And the way to know God's will is to be with other people who are going to open up this book and go, well, this is what God's will is. This is what we are to obey. And then you challenge one another to continue to live that out. And if people are digging into this and understanding God's will, we will know how to proclaim the truth a lot better. And so this is our basis. This is our foundation. And so we are to submit, but we know that this is the highest authority. So knowing the scripture is vitally important so that we can take holy action. So how do we practically do this? Well, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, it's, it's not that we only submit, but there we find that we are to pray. We're to pray for those in office. So we obey and we pray. And what it means is that we pray when the people we didn't vote for get into office, and we pray when the people we did vote for get into office. Doesn't matter who's there, we pray. That's what we're called upon. So when we look at this, we got to ask, are we praying for our government the way that we should be? Then Peter shows us how we are to, how we're to look at this in the perspective we're to have towards people. In verse 17, he says that we respect everyone. The reason he's saying this is because every individual, whether Christian or not, is a creation of God and we give them dignity. And so we respect them even if they don't believe the same thing we do. Then he goes on and he says we love other Christians because if the church is not loving one another, we can't really proclaim Christ well. But notice he started with respect everyone outside. 
love everyone inside. Then he puts in the middle of this, we fear God. And this isn't a running away from God. It's understanding that God is in complete control. He holds everything in his hands. He is the ruler over everything and creator of everything. And so we fear him because he has the power to put people into office and take them out. He is the one that we fear. And so we give him that reverent fear. Then he ends by saying, we honor the emperor. This is a gutsy move by Peter. That the last thing he writes is we honor the emperor. It means that he's not getting everything that we're given to God. But we honor him. But we fear God. And the reason for this is because people who know they've been rescued for eternity live intentionally with holy action. That's what we do. So then Peter goes on in verse 18. Look what it says. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So the second The second action that we need to take is that we need to submit to the daily authority directly over us. That we submit to that authority. Now when we first read this, i got to tell you, it is probably going to make us uncomfortable because it uses the word slave. And this this stirs up a lot of emotion. And so our minds go to the awful, ridiculous time in American history where our black brothers and sisters were slaves, and when it was not right, it was wrong. And it's a tremendous scar on us, and I, I would love to spend more time to look into that, but I, I, I know that because our mind goes there, I want us to see this accurately, and I just have to tell you, when Peter's writing about this, he's not writing in that context. He's writing because first century slavery in this place was different. And we have to understand why it was different. See, some of the masters had a lesser education than their slaves. In fact, I was reading that some people, they were a master and their slaves were doctors. Had a higher education. Why was it? It's because the the slavery uh, title here had to do with economic situations more than racial situations. And so there would be times that because of an economic situation, somebody would voluntarily put themselves into slavery under a master until they they, uh, saved up enough financially to get out of that. So the first century slavery that Peter's talking about is different. And where it parallels with us today is this. It's very much like a boss and employee relationship. And I know it. Some of you are going, that's exactly how I feel. Man, my boss, he's awful. And you're thinking all those things right now. And I'm going to tell you, abstain from that sinful desire. So... When we look at that and we see that that it parallels in this way, I want you to understand this. The biblical truth is that God has created all people, including your boss, including that board. He's given purpose to all people and dignity to all people, which then means as followers of Jesus, 
We choose to place ourselves under the authority in our workplace, which means then as an employee that we are sent into that place to use our good works to lead others to see who Jesus is. So you go to work, yes, to make a paycheck, but the main thing is, is that because your job isn't your identity and your identity is found in Christ, the main role for you in your workplace is to be a promoter of who Jesus Christ is. So you do the best work that you can do because Jesus calls us to that. See, in Colossians 3.17, it says that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So because of that, you go to work and you are the best at your work. Not because you're trying to earn favor, but because you're glorifying God through that form of worship. See, your attitude, your words, your effort, all of that has to be laid out. And so as an employee, you submit. You don't always agree, but you submit and your actions should be drawing and reflecting Christ. So if you have a bad boss, use your actions. Use your actions. If you have a good boss, thank them and use your actions. That you are drawing people to Christ. If you are the boss in this room, I want to remind you that everybody reports to someone And so even if you're at the top, you are reporting to Jesus Christ and your actions and the way that you live is to reflect Christ to your employees so that the values you have in your business reflect the biblical values of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, you're for the flourishing of all your employees and you're drawing them to Jesus Christ. So if you're in a group, let me tell you, I think you need to be thinking and discussing how can you be intentional with your actions at work this week? What does that look like? What steps do you need to take? Then, lastly, verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So the third action, holy action that we should take is that we trust God in the midst of suffering. Now here's the deal. It's really easy to say that. It's really easy. And for some of us, we are going through suffering. Remember, Peter is writing this to people that are being accused unjustly. They're innocent, and they're being accused, and they're being judged in certain ways. And he is saying, trust God in the midst of suffering. See, some of the most powerful statements we can make is when we're in the midst of suffering, how we live out our faith. And I know it's hard. It's hard to speak of this in a world that is full of so much pain. But in this verse, Peter is clear that Jesus is near in the midst of that. He has not left. And so when you suffer, when you've done nothing wrong, God sees it. And it says, he will reward you. That is the perfect reward. 
So I don't know what's going on. Some of you have unjust suffering. And I want you to remember your identity. You are a child. You are a possession of God Almighty. He is near in the midst of that. And so the, the bookend of this is verse 21. And identity, your identity is going to lead you to action, holy action. And when that holy action takes place, it always takes you back to who you are in Christ. So let me remind you. People who know that they have been rescued for eternity, they live intentionally with holy action. So what is the holy action you need to take today? What is it that you need to do? These were three practical things that Peter was saying, but there is a vast array of them. How can you take action today so that Christ is proclaimed wherever you are? Father, I ask that you would continue to lead us that you would lead us in the midst of these things, that when it's hard to submit, that you would teach us how to do it. I thank you that, Jesus, that you, you submitted. You submitted and you were the example for us. I thank you for your holy action that you took in saving us from our sins. And I ask, Lord, that because of us taking holy action, because of the salvation you put in us, that you would draw people to you. I pray that we would be telling stories of people in our neighborhood, our workplace, that have come to the realization of who you are because, not just because we're saying things, but because our lives are reflecting it. So lead us in that. It's your name I pray. Amen.